Well, I invite you to turn to Matthew 5. We're going to carry on working through the Sermon on the Mount here. And we'll pick up from verse 17. So you find it on page 1427. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that um, in these verses, which are one of the few times when Jesus really really tackles his view and his approach to the law in a really explicit way, the Old Testament. I think few, few portions of the New Testament could be more important for us to, to get a handle on and understand. And I'll give you some reasons why, but just very quickly, in case you're not up to speed. Um, Jesus was reading basically everything that comes before just these pages. That was his, his scriptures, his Bible. Written roughly 1,800 to 400 years before he was born. And when he uses this expression, the law and the prophets, he's just basically talking about all of the scriptures that were written in Hebrew, which he'd sort of, in, uh, as a Jewish boy, would have grown up reading, studying, meditating on, learning portions by heart. And uh, was, he uses this catch-all term, the law and the prophets. And I think there's few things that could be more important for us as Christians to get a handle on because it really gets right to the heart of um, one of the, the, the core issues that affects Christians in a day-to-day, week-by-week um, experience of their walk with God and also experience of what church feels like. And I say that for this reason because Christians have a tendency to kind of push in one of two directions. And it seems to me that... It, as much as we love and believe and, and preach about the gospel, which is that Jesus has saved us, we, we always have this tendency to fall back into, into kind of default modes of the human heart. And one of those, on the one hand, of course, is this tendency to fall back into a kind of legalistic way of thinking, where we want to kind of prove ourselves to God, as it were, and kind of build a sense of our, our worth and our righteousness and our our justification, to self-justify before a holy God. And that doesn't just affect your relationship with him vertically. It affects your relationship with one another and horizontally, how you regard and treat other people who call themselves Christians, the way that you draw the boundaries in terms of who's in and who's out. And unfortunately, churches often, and individuals, I, you, we often get this wrong. Because as much as we want to love and preach the gospel, we always find ourselves slipping back into a way of thinking, which I think is, is almost like the default for the human heart. I remember um, when I was growing up, I used to love the film Chariots of Fire, um, which stars um, the character of Eric Little, who is this, this Scottish runner, who is also a Scottish Presbyterian, who loves Jesus. In fact, his later years, when he was retired from running. He went into 
the mission field to China and eventually died in a POW camp um, as a prisoner of war in, in the Second World War. But Eric Little was a man who, um, in his devotion to God, had very, sort of very clear boundaries about what he considered right. And I think it came from a totally pure motive in his case. But you, if you watch the film, you see this little cameo early on in the film where he walks out of church on Sunday and a, and a boy is kicking a ball around. And he stops the boy and he's like, hey, Sonny, do you really think that's appropriate on the Lord's Day or something down those lines? And, and obviously there's a part of you, you know, they're setting up the whole thing of when he gets into the Paris Olympics in, in 1926. And it turns out that, that that same principle that he applied to that little boy playing on a Sunday is now going to affect him because one of the heats for the 100-meter race, which is his race, is, falls on a Sunday. And he has to make this decision before God, am I going to run or am I not going to run? As it turns out, he doesn't run, but there's a happy ending. Watch the film. It's a great film and a real story. But often, I think, one of the things, as much as I want to say, okay, his conscience was right before God, there's a part of me that, that disagrees with the stance he took. That there was almost a, a, a kind of what you want to call a legalism to it. And that's at the very soft end of what I'm talking about here. At the, very, at the much harder end, I don't think... There could be any one of us who doesn't know somebody who, in running into a kind of hard, judgmental, law-based way of relating to God, even in church, has been hurt themselves, or in, and many people who've in fact walked away from Christ altogether as a result. So we have this kind of thing going on on the one hand, and at the other extreme, the very opposite, almost like a backlash to it. We have so many churches where... And Christians who, who almost see the way they live as an irrelevancy to the, to the Holy God. And uh, there's no, no real earnest desire to pursue holiness. No, no real awareness of why we ought to live lives that are seeking to please God. And lives that are seeking to obey Him and live for Him. And, and really, I think many people just think, well, your life doesn't really matter. Once, once you're saved, that's it. Christ. His grace just covers it all in a way that's sort of irrespective of, of who you are, what you do, how you live. Now, I know that in both of these errors, you know, I want to say there's a seed of truth, which is what makes them difficult to deal with and handle. Now, we add to that a bunch of other really tough questions when we're looking at the Old Testament and the law and all that. How do we read an Old Testament which is full of parts which are often a little bit strange, like whole chapters devoted to how you should deal with skin disease amongst, with an Israelite. So that if, if somebody's got what they, they called leprosy or whatever it was at the time, I don't think it's the same as modern-day leprosy, whatever it was, how you handle that, how you handle people who are dabbling in witchcraft and all these kinds of things, strange things that we don't necessarily identify with today because we don't, we don't live or practice the same the same way of living, the same law. It's not our rule for life in the same way, at least. And how do we uphold, as Christians, a kind of objective view of what is right and wrong in the world when there are parts of the Bible that um, we aren't completely aligning to? So, I, you know, the laws about leprosy would be a really great one, to just an example, but there's lots of others. You know, you guys wear clothes of mixed materials, and this is something which, in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 17, says that's, that's actually against God's law. And these are really, really tough questions. 
that they're really hard I, I, to understand just how the Old Testament that Jesus read connects with him as a person and also the whole of the New Testament and what it means to be a Christian. Now, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions today. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think we're just going to... I want us to just focus in on what Jesus says here and try and, and understand how he puts himself at the center and as the hero of the scripture and then how that shines light on everything, that we, how we read it. Now, we need to begin with this question. What, what was Jesus facing? Why did he have to say this? You know, he begins with this negative. Do not think. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. So what was going on? Why were people looking at Jesus and questioning his, his teaching or his lifestyle? I think the answer is this. I think that there were basically two kinds of people um, who he was addressing at that moment. There were people on his right and on his left. And on his right, not literally, okay, I don't really know where people were sat, but on his right, he had people who, um, who looked at Jesus as a kind of liberal reformer. So you could think, they, they kind of saw him a bit how David Cameron looked at Russell Brand recently and, and called him a joke. Um, they, they see him as a kind of liberal reformer who's not really um, interested in upholding the old-fashioned conservative values of what it means to be an Israelite. And so they look on him and they hate him for it. And they, th- they question. And they- this, this really builds and builds throughout the Gospels, by the way. Um, but there's these guys on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there are, there's another group of people who have been walking under the weight of, of feeling far from God, uh, feeling that they, don't, they couldn't possibly um, match up to the lifestyle that the, the Scriptures talk about. And looking really for a way out. And here comes Jesus. And he seems to have a slightly different message. And a slightly different way of speaking. In a different mode. And they think maybe this guy. Has come to overturn the Old Testament. Overturn all of its laws. And its hard principles. And all the stuff that makes it really hard to be a Jew. You know why is it that. No one else in the world has to get circumcised, and we do. Why is it that no one else in the world has to stop eating pork, and we, you know, it's delicious. Why is it that we can't eat some bacon? Why is it, why is it that we um, aren't allowed to work on a Saturday when it means we can't be competitive with the surrounding nations? You know, all these laws that we find so frustrating, perhaps the worst one of all. Why do we have to give 10% of everything we earn to the temple? And so these guys who are, who, who are failing, often failing, and... And, and Jesus is, is wanting to address both of them. Guys who hate him because they think he's softening the law. Um, and, and guys who maybe are attracted to him because they, th- they also think he's softening the law. And they think, hey, this is our easy way out. Now, why is it that they were thinking the, this stuff about Jesus? And I think there are a number of reasons. One is that here he comes and he, he starts teaching in his own authority. You see at the end of Matthew 7 where it says that people were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You've got to understand, okay, that the Jewish rabbis, when, they're, when they were discussing Scripture, they often did it in a very indirect way. In fact, they didn't necessarily even debate exactly what the Bible says. They just debated what other people said the Bible says. And they say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and if we compare what they're saying, then maybe we'll come to this third conclusion. But what they were doing was just asking lots of questions and running round and round in circles. 
And Jesus comes in on the scene and he starts saying things like, I say to you. Which sounds like he's putting himself in the place of God, doesn't it? Or he comes on the scene and he says things like, your sins are forgiven. So one of the, the, one of the clues that people had that Jesus had a slightly different mode or a different message was this authority by which he taught people and told them what right and wrong was, whether they could be forgiven or not, what it means to follow God and what it doesn't mean. He, he didn't teach like anyone else around. He had this profound authority. Another reason why they thought, well, this guy's trouble, is that he ignored their traditions. Jocelyn mentioned it in the worship, how you know, they walk around on the Sabbath picking heads of grain off the stalks in the field. So it's like you going out down to the, the war museum after church and just sort of, um, if you pick a few flowers or you pick a head of tulip. And the Jews were so tight about the law. They say, well, you guys are working. You're harvesting, even though it's just rubbing a few grains between your fingers. And Jesus had no regard for the traditions of, that had built up around the law. He didn't bother with washing his hands before mealtimes, which you think might be that's disgusting, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a hygiene thing. At the time, it was a purity thing. It was a way of saying to God, oh, we're pure before we eat, and we don't want to put any uncleanness into our body, any sin into our body. And Jesus says, hey, guys, you can't put sin into your body. Sin comes out of you. It comes out of your heart. So he, he taught with authority. He totally disregarded the traditions of, that are built up around the Old Testament, he starts reinterpreting the Bible. Uh, that's what we're going to discover as we go through this, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it, 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 he has a number of places where he says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes a portion of scripture. And then he says, but I say unto you, and he offers a whole new light on it. Another thing that Jesus does is he keeps keeping really bad company. I mean, the worst kinds of people. I, I honestly think that if, if Jesus were were around among us incognito today, many of us would raise our eyebrows at the kind of company that he was keeping. You know, at at the one end, he just had very, very blue-collar people. He wasn't really interested in hanging out with the the, the religious elite, the scribes, the educated, the university-educated people. He had, like, the equivalent of the kind of scaffolders of his day, you know, guys who were rough, with shaved heads and, and, and uh, you know, suntan. That's what Peter was like. These guys, they called uneducated common men. That was kind of like the company that Jesus kept. But then at the much more pointed end of that, there was the prostitutes and, and the criminals, basically. The tax collector criminals. These guys were, were bad news. And so you put the whole picture together of what Jesus was like. And he just looks like, for all the world... Like he doesn't care about the Bible. Like he doesn't care about the traditions, what it means to be faithful. And so here he is, he smashes on the scene and, and people at one end hate him, other end are attracted to him because they think this guy is going to give us an easy way out. And then Jesus turns around effectively in these verses and says to them all, you are all wrong about me. You just look at it verse by verse as we just look, look down at your Bible here at the top. It says, he says, firstly, I haven't, I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. I want us to just think about that in a bit more detail in a moment. 
And then the next verse he says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What he's saying is that the word of God is unbreakable right down to the tiniest details. I brought with me um, a Hebrew Old Testament just to show you, try and give you an idea of what he meant when he said that. This one actually belonged to the world-famous Bible teacher, R.T. Kendall. And, uh, so you can touch it later and get the anointing. But um, <laughs> if you look, you can't really see much, but if you look, um, you can see that the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew letterings, they ha- it's kind of ornate. And there's little, little strokes of the pen and little flurries. And even more so if you look at an ancient scroll, the letters would have little, what look like little feathers off the corner of a letter. And when Jesus says non iota or dot, that's what he meant. He meant far from wanting to be a kind of generalizer. He said, well, roughly this is what God was sort of on about in the Old Testament. And now let me just tell you what he really meant. He was like, no, I care about the tiniest detail because it is all the unbreakable, everlasting word of God. Then he goes on. He says that anyone who relaxes these commandments and, and, then, and then teaches others, that they're, they're the least in the kingdom. He says... Anyone who thinks that you can not only be ungodly, but then also condone it, endorse it, lead others in an ungodly path, he says, you guys are not my friends. So while he seemed to have all these friends around him who, who um, had these questionable lifestyles, you've got to understand that Jesus was constantly challenging people toward godliness. Now, I think this is one of the massive mistakes that people make when they think about Jesus. You know, it's often said um, by various groups who want to kind of soften, soften Jesus on certain key issues. They often say, look, he was all about love and he was all about grace so that he, he didn't want to challenge people. And the reality is, yeah, while he was accepting and loving, I think one of the most amazing examples of that is the woman caught in adultery in John 8. And he, she's dragged in front of him. And, you know, according to the law, she ought to be stoned. But Jesus has this penetrating insight into the hearts of the people accusing her. It says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. But it doesn't just end there. If it just ended there, you'd think, well, Jesus is just saying it's okay to go and commit adultery and you'll get off scot-free. Because then he turns to the woman and he says, go and sin no more. So while Jesus is extraordinarily, profoundly gracious and loving. So that even the most broken people in society felt that they were welcomed into his presence. At no point did he want to indulge, condone, or whitewash over the sins of their hearts. And the same goes for us today, doesn't it? That while Jesus loves us, And he keeps loving us with this relentless mercy and grace. His intention is not just to leave us in our sin, but to intervene and to transform and to challenge and to change us. He says the word of God is unbreakable. He says that you can't relax any of it. And then he says in this last verse, the thing which is most cutting and and which really is just smashing the teeth of, of some of his hearers. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you have to be clear, he's saying, 
unless you're better than the best people here, you'll never enter the kingdom. Which was a problem for the people on his right and the people on his left. Because the people on his right were thinking, we've got it together and we're fine, we're sorted, praise God. And he says, no, you're not good enough. And the people on his left were thinking, oh, maybe he's going to give us an easy let out. And he says, no, you've got to be like them, but even better. And you see, the instinct on both sides, although they're at pole ends of the spectrum, ironically, the instinct is exactly the same one. It's the desire of the human heart to justify yourself. Whether it's the guy who's trying to keep the law to the letter, and he says, by doing this, I will justify my life before the living God. Or it's the person who's trying to sort of smudge the law and maybe wipe it away or cut bits out or try and downgrade it. And they're doing the exact same thing. They're trying to justify themselves, except they're just taking the bar and they're just going and lowering it to a height that they can easily step over. And Jesus is saying to both of them, no, you've all got it wrong because you all need to be a heck of a lot more righteous if you're going to have a chance before a holy God. And this is such a powerful and important thing for us to hear today because I think there's never been a time when people are less interested in the whole thing of what it means to have sin in the heart. I I came across this amazing quote in C.S. Lewis. It's in his biography, by C.S. Lewis, in his biography. And he's talking about one of the challenges that he had in articulating the Christian faith to the generation he was in. He's writing about the experience of in the 1940s. You know, he'd done these lectures uh, that became mere Christianity, lectures on the radio um, during the wartime. And he became notorious as a man who could articulate the Christian faith to a generation which was largely becoming less and less interested in Christianity. And uh, he said this. He said, what do you think was his greatest challenge? Well, he puts it this way. He says, the greatest barrier that I've met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. Saying this is the hardest thing that I face in trying to make Christianity seem not only rational, rational, but appealing to the people who I'm speaking to. He says they don't have any sense of sin. He said the early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers whether Jews, Metuentes or pagans, I don't know what a Metuente is, but those guys or pagans, they could assume a sense of guilt. And thus the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the Evangelium, the, gospel, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. Now isn't this where we began in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The gospel only works when you know that you're spiritually bankrupt. But then he says, we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. He said the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now the picture might be slightly different today. To what it was in Lewis' day. And it's vastly different to what it was at the time of Jesus. But you've got to see it's the same thread running through the human heart. It's the same basic instinct to say, I am good. And into this, Jesus now creates this problem. 
Because in these verses, he says, no. He says, I've not come to minimize, downplay, ignore, or push aside the word of God and the holiness of God that it communicates. The word of God is not separate from God. It's not separate from who he is and his person. It's not separate from his, his desires, his, his person, his instincts, his holiness. The word of God is, in a sense, an extension of him. So to disregard it and push it to one side is to disregard God himself. And Jesus said, I will have no part of that, which puts us all in an extraordinarily difficult place. Because not only do we have this question, how can we be better than the scribes and the Pharisees? We also have this question, how can we be better and not in the process become more self-righteous and arrogant like they had become. And friend, this is something we have to keep coming back to. I don't know where you think you are before God or how you regard yourself. But having a true knowledge of, of how God sees you, of what your life is like, is always the first place to begin in order to have a real relationship with him. You cannot know God by sidestepping this issue or minimizing the whole problem of sin and the great problem of the holiness of the living God. But then we've got to come back to the first verse where I think we get the key to it all. Because he says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to smash it down, push it aside. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfilled them and in those few words we have all the hope that we need as Christians let me just try and explain to you what he meant by fulfill I think it means at least these four things the first is the obvious one that he fulfilled the law by doing it that Jesus was the perfect man I remember hearing Amy or Ewing, who's just such a wonderful um, evangelist um, and speaker, talking about well, what is evangelism? And she just said, quite simply, it's just telling people how crazily, wonderfully, fanatically in love we are with Jesus because he is incredible. She didn't say it in those exact words, but that was a sentiment. And for us, that's where we begin. We begin with the knowledge that Jesus is perfect and that he is the man who, who, who faced the temptations that you and I face but never once gave an inch to them, didn't give in, wasn't pushed back, wasn't forced into a corner. He, he resisted. He was perfect in his righteousness. That's the first way in which I think he's saying, I fulfill the law. But it's much more than that. The second thing is this, that he fulfills the law and the prophets by being the conclusion or the purpose for which they were all leading and pointing so that he is the destination, the end of the road, the end of the journey, the logical conclusion to everything that had come before him. And that's true in a very sort of plain, this is that way, when you look at, okay, here are the predictions in the prophets about somebody who was to come. And if you've never looked at those 
those, those prophecies about Jesus, of which there are well over a hundred very clear ones, it's most breathtaking to see how he filled the portrait of this one, this expectation of somebody who was to come. You see how all the threads find their conclusion and they're tied together in the person of Jesus, just in that very simple way. But the more you uncover about the Old Testament and its storyline, the more you begin to see the wonderful ways in which multiple layers of complexity all find their, their end in the person of Jesus. And it's not just about the prophecies, it's also about the entirety of the law. What was the law? It was a covenantal system whereby man could relate to God. And he had to do it through his own personal righteousness and then through the whole system of sacrifice in the temple with a priest and with, a, with lambs and all kinds of animals sacrificed on the altar. And Jesus shows how he, in himself, embodies the entire system of the law in his own person. He is the law. He's the embodiment, the walking Old Testament. He's the temple through which we come to meet with God. He's the priest who mediates between us and God. So you could never approach God unmediated. You couldn't stand face to face with God and know that you would survive the experience. And then Jesus comes alongside and says, I, like a lawyer, I will represent you to my Father and make sure that you, hear, you're, you're, um, you get off, basically. And he comes also as the lamb who lies down on the altar. And all your sin is put onto his head, just as the Old Testament lambs were, were touched by the priest. And the sins of the nation were placed onto the heads. And Jesus comes, and the whole sin of mankind is placed on his head. And he lies on the altar, and he's slaughtered there to satiate God's wrath and to so bring conclusion to the story of the Old Testament. When he says that I've come to fulfill them, he doesn't just mean by being godly. He means by bringing the logical conclusion to everything that the Old Testament was about. Which, by the way, friends, is why, as Christians, we read the Old Testament. How else can you know Jesus in his fullness? How else can you understand him or know what he is about unless you understand the story that came before him and what it was that he was fulfilling? Otherwise, you have a two-dimensional Jesus. A third thing is this, that he fulfilled the law by satisfying its demands. Do you remember how um, in one of Paul's letters in Galatians, he talks about Jesus becoming our curse. And he does it like this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And the logic of it is this. He's saying the law is your accuser. You have fallen short. You have not exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. There's there's no chance. You don't have a snowball's chance in hell. He says, and as a result... The entire weight of the law is leaned down upon you in accusation. So that the Father in his holiness sees you and sees your sin. Sees right to your core. And he says, as a result, all the curses of the Old Testament that were to fall upon lawbreakers, they fall on us. 
But then there's a scripture which Paul then quotes where it says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That somehow all of the poison of the curse of falling short of God's holiness was focused in on just one man when he absorbed that curse in himself when his body was brutally nailed to the cross or the tree. And so, the other way in which he then fulfills the law is that he satisfies it. That there's a sense of closure to what the law was seeking to do. The law as God's express and um, revealed will of God was there to be your accuser. And therefore it has to find justice. And you and I know that our lives are far short of our own desires and expectations. How much more of the holy God's? And he says, I fulfilled it by bringing all of that curse in myself, upon myself, upon that tree. And so what was left as an unresolved problem now finds its resolution in me. That is why he says when he's hanging on the cross, those words, it is finished. Because the curse was spent upon him. The full anger of God, the full punishment that you and I deserve. And here's the final way in which he fulfills the law. He fulfills it by being the experience by being God in man and by showing us what God is like. What do I mean? Well, when you read your Old Testament, you get a picture of who God is, don't you? But that picture, while it's very full, is not complete. This is why when you read your Old Testament up to the coming of Jesus, you would not have any idea if you were not told that it's, it's communicating that God is three persons, just to give you one example that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's there when you look back at it through the lens of Jesus, but if you were to read it in isolation, you can't see it there. Because the Bible isn't a kind of download like the Matrix. It's not like somebody like a prophet just plugged into the Matrix and suddenly got this massive download about who God was and then just splurged it all onto a page. It's an unfolding, layer by layer, progressive, a revelation of who God is. God's showing people through countless different ways, whether it's through personal experiences or whether it's through God actually speaking to them, whether it's through the, the acts of God in the world, building up layer by layer this picture of who God is. And yet, when you take the Old Testament in itself, it's not complete. While we, while we get to know a bit about who God is, we don't have the full picture. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he's the fulfillment of all of that because he shows us what God is like. And we don't need any other revelation about him in that sense. This is why he says things like this in John 14, 9. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. An impossibility. You can't see God. But he says, look at me. And you get what God is like. His kindness, his mercy, his love, his anger against sin, and yet his willingness speedily to forgive anybody who is genuinely wanting to be forgiven. It's why Paul says in Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God. So that you are literally, well not 
I always say literally, I don't mean literally, but you are, it's like you're painting a picture of God when you look at the face of Jesus Christ. It's why um, it says in Hebrews 1 that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is everything about God that you couldn't possibly imagine or conceive or conjure up in your own thinking is suddenly brought into focus in one man. And as you read the pages of the Gospels, everything that the Old Testament was hinting at in these unfolding layers is suddenly brought into crystal clear focus when you look at the person, Jesus Christ. I didn't come to abolish the law. It's all about me. How could I abolish it? And here I am. I am the law. I am what it was all about. That's what he's saying. Now just to bring this all to a conclusion. He's saying that the Old Testament finds its resolution, its satisfaction, its completion in him. But what does that mean for you when you read these words of Jesus back in Matthew 5? It means, first of all, you know, when he's talking about this unchanging law, it's saying God hasn't changed. And he's not lowered the bar and he's not softened his standards. And in fact, if anything, as you'll, we're going to discover, Jesus raises it. It seems that he makes it more difficult. And he says, not only is the bar even higher, but he says, I'm actually the one who's going to be judging you. That's the first thing we've got to get in our heads. The second is this, you, I, we fall short. And when he's saying here, you know, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think he wants everybody to go away and recognize that that is not true of them. It's not that he wants them to go away and and, and scurry about learning how to, to be a better person and work harder and harder. He wants us to honestly acknowledge that this isn't possible. I can't do it. And then we come back to this word, fulfill. Jesus makes it possible for us all to be right with God. And he does it in two ways. He does it in the first way, which is to pronounce you holy, justified. Which I like to think of it like this. That it's like Jesus takes off his garment and places it upon you. So that, in a sense, when you approach the Father, you approach him almost in disguise. A little bit like the way um, Jacob is blessed by his father Isaac. And he has to put on goat's hair on his arm because his brother Esau is so hairy. And he has to wear Esau's smelly clothes because he's out, he's, he goes out hunting all day and he stinks of sweat. And, and Jacob wants to pretend to be Esau and he puts on all of these, his garment and this, this fur on his arms and then he goes to his, his dad and pretends to be his brother. And there's a way in which that's exactly what it means for us when we come to the Father. We, we come wearing Jesus' robes. We come with the hairy arms, as it were, so that when the Father touches us, it's like he's touching the Son, Jesus, the perfect Son, and he doesn't judge us. He doesn't place the curse upon us. But there's another way in which this, this works. I think when Jesus is saying, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
I don't think he means, I'm just going to cover your, your, your life up and um, how you live then doesn't matter. I'm just going to give it to you as a gift. There is an element of that. But then the Bible also tells us that when Jesus takes hold of your life, he so changes you in the heart that the righteousness from which, which you then begin to express as a Christian does exceed that of the, the Pharisees and the scribes. Because where their righteousness was so legalistic and rule-keeping and boxed in to a, a kind of almost an anal way of trying to obey the law, Jesus changes the root issue, which is hatred against God, and makes you into a lover of the Father. And somebody who also loves people. Which is why Paul says these incredible words in Romans 8. Where he says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's justification. He dealt with your, your problem. He dealt with the problem of the curse in Jesus. But then he says this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ didn't come to lower the bar. He came to raise it. One of the things that's going to strike us again and again as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is just how how pure Christ wants his people to be. How holy he wants them to be. But praise God, he doesn't just want us to strive towards this and strain towards it. It's his promise to you as his child that he wants to create that heart in you. If you're someone who's despairing of yourself, and how often do we find ourselves in that position where we feel, man, I just messed up again. Jesus' gift to us is his own righteousness, and then his gift to us is his spirit. That's how Paul puts it, that we live not by the flesh and not by the law, but we live by the Spirit of God.